I come to you this morning um, with some teaching that I hope will be helpful to you. Pastor David has been talking in his series on white lies and so forth about the varieties of untruths, departures, uh, the ways that true teaching and proper understanding are tripped up by various errors, mistakes, and sometimes, frankly, by outright opposition. Um, he and I have enjoyed very many discussions across the years as we have talked through a lot of these things. And he asked me today to spend some time with you talking about something that first, when I first mentioned it, might sound a little bit strange, but is actually at the heart of the faith. The true faith was given to the saints once for all, and we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit through those who wrote the scriptures, the necessary things that we need to understand that we might come to full knowledge of Christ, that we might be filled with understanding and wisdom. Unfortunately, ever since the first generation, uh, Satan has been moving mightily to oppose, to twist, to seek to turn people away from the scriptures, from the gospel, from the clear simplicity that is in Christ. One of the fundamental teachings of the faith is the cross. Everything points to the cross of Christ. Uh, it is his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of his people and his substitution, his life perfect, blameless, holy for ours which are not. That the great love of the Father that the submission of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit were all pointing to that, the cross. You can hardly imagine the gospel without it. There is no gospel without that. As Paul himself would say, if, if Christ isn't risen, then you are still in your sins and we are fools. You might as well eat, drink, and be married the way the Greeks did. Because tomorrow you will die, and that's all there is to it. This teaching regards what we call technically, theologically, penal substitutionary atonement. Let me explain it word by word. It sounds complicated. It really isn't. Penal addresses the fact that mankind is under penalty, that in the fall, with our collapse into depravity, total depravity, man was completely helpless, completely destroyed, and unable to save himself. So there's a penalty. That's where the word penal in the Latin, it's what it points to. There's a penalty. There's a consequence. There's a legal cost. We are on death row. The human race had no, no escape, which was exactly what Satan intended, that we be destroyed. Satan, you see, hates us, absolutely despises us, because we are children of grace, something that he does not know and hates. Believe it or not, when you look at the idea of substitutionary atonement, that is, that which we could not do for ourselves, Christ did for us on the cross, correct? We could not save ourselves. None righteous. There's not one. Nobody seeks God. Everyone has fallen. And apart from the grace of God, they will not come. Christ said that no one, no one, could come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them, literally drags them. And those, he said, I will raise on the last day. So he atoned. He gave his life in exchange for our sinful lives that we might be 
literally justified in him. Again, that's, that's at the heart of the Christian faith. If that is not true, then none of it is true. If Christ on the cross does not mean that, it doesn't mean anything. Believe it or not, this essential doctrine of the church, which has been there from the first generation delivered by the apostles to us, is under attack and has been under attack ever since. But in our own time, there is a movement, and Pastor David has referenced it several times, a movement that's called progressive Christianity, which, I'll put it this way. Personally, I think it's neither progressive nor Christianity. Otherwise, it's doing just fine. I want to give you a quote from Dr. Jeffrey France, who was a, he's apparently associated with them. And I took it straight off the progressivechristianity.org website. I don't think you could get anything that's more blunt than this. If you want to know how the idea of substitutionary atonement is being attacked, just listen to this. He says, within the world of progressive Christianity, it is amazing how the Christian faith, supported by the Christian church, has continued over the decades and centuries to teach and preach the mantra, Jesus died for our sins. It would be hard to measure the hurtful guilt and pain this teaching has caused God-fearing Christians over the years. Yeah. You know, I was very sure that's what I was going to hear right about this point. He says, the fall that never happened. To begin with, the idea of Jesus dying for our sins has the premise of creation and human origins all wrong. According to Charles Darwin, an evolutionary theory, there never was any perfect creation. Human life emerged in a natural selection process taking place over billions of years. Therefore, there could not have been a fall because there was nothing to fall from. I do want you to understand how very serious this person is. Jesus did not come to rescue fallen sinners from a fall that never happened. Again, there was never any perfection from which to be corrupted. Human beings are not born in sin. Think for a moment how ridiculous this notion is. Do any of us really believe an infant baby is a sinner? Sin has to do with freedom and responsibility as we grow into adulthood. It is not a condition we are born with. Infant children do not need to have their sins washed away in baptism. Christian baptism, therefore, needs to be reconsidered and understood more as a blessing of life. Darwin's revelations radically crushed the traditional Christian view of salvation. Human beings do not need to be saved from a fall that never happened, nor do they need to be rescued or redeemed. Simply put, the salvation story of traditional Christianity is ill-founded, and needs to be reinterpreted. Unquote. Well, this is actually a statement that was placed on their site in 2020, end of the year. So this is a very recent statement of what progressive, so-called progressive Christianity represents. Personally, I'd have to say it would be really hard to imagine a more terse rejection of Christianity. It's hard for me to imagine a person who is at a site that uses the word Christianity thinking that this represents anything like the Christian faith, that it is biblical in any sense of the term. As a matter of fact, this is about as violent and radical a repudiation of everything the scriptures have to say about the nature of God, the nature of man, why Christ came, what redemption's about, do we really need it? He's too busy progressing to be Christian. 
you don't have a choice. Either be a Christian or be progressive along these lines. Don't try to mix the two. In response, we need to think about what that term means. Again, penal indicates that there's a penalty, that there has been a violation, that there has been an offense that's culpable. Substitutionary indicates that the way that this must be dealt with is that there must be found someone to do what, can, what the ones who are guilty cannot do for themselves. And atonement simply means the payment, the payment of some sort of sacrifice to cover the sins. That's all that it is, really. And so I want to I wanna talk about it and develop it just a little bit for you here. I hope you find this helpful. First, we have to go back to the original creation, which, unlike our learned friend postulates, has nothing to do with Darwin or billions of years or anything else. We know that God created the heavens and the earth. We know that the Lord is quite explicit in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as to exactly how he did that. How did he sequence it? How did it happen? By the word of his power. He spoke and it was. All things were made by the word and without him was not anything made that was made. He spoke it into existence. If you cannot accept that, well, at least God put it in the front of the Bible so you don't have to keep reading. <laughs> I just saved a lot of time because I don't like this book. Okay? And this is the sort of thing that we have to start with because originally the human race, you and me, as the sense of sin, Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. The image is a statement of structure. That is, God is three but one, but three but one, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So are you. So am I. Because we have body, soul, and spirit. They're explicitly mentioned in the scriptures. That is, the very structure of our being mirrors the structure of the one who made us as the crown of creation. This is essential to understand. You don't understand this, and frankly, you're going to find that much of the rest of the scriptures are blurry. They don't really help you. You can't understand what you experience. Furthermore, we're created in his likeness. What does that mean? That has to do to form and appearance. Guess what? You look like God. God has hands. God has eyes. He has a mouth. He has a nose. He has legs. He has a belly. These are all outlined in the scriptures. The visible image of the invisible God, the ancient of days, is seen and described. Now the Father, we do not see. The Holy Spirit, we do not see. But the image, the word, we do see. You're the same way. You have a body, that's your visible image. But you have two parts that are invisible. Your soul and your spirit are not seen. You see, keeping it simple. We are made in that way. And the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, what do they look like? Aliens? No, they look like us. Actually, we look like them. We look like them. So God created us to be the crown of creation, and we were made to be stewards of the planet, to rule over everything that God made, because it pleased God to have creatures that were like him, not like the angels. Of none of the angels did he ever say, 
you are my son. Of none of the angels did he exhibit his grace and his love and glory the way he has to the human race, and that was his intention. Why? Because God likes playing with mud. God likes mud. He likes earth. He likes, he's a sculptor. He's a playwright. He's a storyteller. He loves working with clay. Otherwise, how could he be the potter? The potter, the clay. So, this is what we were made to be. And we walked, Adam and Eve walked in the garden in glory, in the Shekinah glory of God. They glowed. The light shone forth from them. That's how when the time came, they knew they had fallen. The light went out. You have to believe that that's where we were before you can begin to understand what happened. We know the general story of the fall, right? Man fell. Won't go into the details. And it's what man became, male and female, all the descendants thereof, that the scriptures comment on. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, 28 to 32. He says, furthermore, because they did not think it worthwhile to keep knowing God fully, God delivered them to degraded minds to perform acts that should not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, quarreling, deceit, and viciousness. They're gossips slanderers, God-haters, haughty, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Holy cow. That's one, t- <laughs> That's one heck of an indictment. Although they know God's just requirement that those who practice such things deserve to die That's the penalty. There you have the penal. The whole human race bound up together, fallen as one gigantic mess. For this you are worthy of death. And when God says that, that's severe. And there is no escape. You've got to be thinking about this. You have to understand that if you are not in Christ Jesus, you are the walking dead. If you're sitting here right now and are not in Jesus Christ, you are literally hanging by a spider's thread over the very darkness of hell. And every breath you take is on death row. That is the truth. My friends would tell you, I don't hold back on the truth. I love you, and because I love you, I will tell you the truth. The scriptures go on (laughs) and says, oh, it gets worse and worse. They not only do these things that are worthy of death, but even applaud others who practice them. This is how you get movements of various kinds. Okay, these various movements that come along in a cause and various causes wherein they not only do things that are unworthy, they applaud and seek to bring out more people to do unworthiness. And they seek to push agendas of unworthiness and enforce unworthiness on all. Because they did not think it worthwhile to keep knowing God fully, God delivered them to degraded minds to perform acts that should not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And see, he's he's not finished yet. 
They're full of envy, murder, quarreling, deceit, and viciousness. All you have to do is watch the news. Okay? This is the kind of thing that makes it very clear that God must condemn such things because they're entirely contrary to his nature. To walk in darkness is to walk in death. We know, according to John, 1 John chapter 1, that God is light, and in him is no darkness whatsoever. None. What was there before he created anything? Only light. Only light. When he created the heavens and the earth, there was only light. Remember what Christ said? I am the light of the world. And he isn't kidding. This has nothing to do with the sun, the moon, and the stars. They're only vague reflections of his glory. God himself is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Meanwhile, where's the human race? Paul says in Romans 3, 5 through 20, but if our unrighteousness serves to confirm God's righteousness, what can we say? God is not unrighteous when he vents his wrath on us, is he? See that word wrath? It's not a cold injunction we're hit with. He is enraged. He is absolutely light, and darkness brings forth his rage. He hates evil. He hates darkness. We're going to see how a certain problem is resolved later. And he says, I'm talking in human terms. Of course not. Otherwise, how could God judge the world? For if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness glorifies him even more, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Or can we say, as some people slander us by claiming we say, let's do evil that good may result. Hey, if, you know, if God's grace does abound for sinners, well, let's sin even more. Then grace can abound more. See, kind of like those who argue that Judas received grace because, after all, he was just helping Christ to fulfill his mission. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That, by the way, is an example of depraved thinking. That is the irrationality of sin. He goes on and says, they deserve to be condemned. What then does this mean? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already accused everyone, both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. As it is written, and listen to this from the Psalms, not even one person is righteous. No one understands. No one searches for God. All have turned away. They have become completely worthless. No one shows kindness, not even one person. Their throats are open graves. Oh, ugly. With their tongues they deceive. The venom of poisonous snakes is under their lips. Uh, in scriptural terms, you can't get much lower than this. And by the way, that's us. That's us. That's not some other strange race over there someplace. This is the human race. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They run swiftly to shed blood. Again, watch the news. Ruin and misery characterize their lives. They have not learned the past, the peace. They don't fear God. There's no reverential awe of God at all in their eyes. As a matter of fact, they spit on him. Now we know that whatever the law says applies to those who are under the law, so every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, God will not justify any human being by means of the actions prescribed by the law, for through the law, in each case you hear law, remember it comes from the Hebrew Torah, 
which isn't like a set of legal regulations passed by state legislature. Torah in Hebrew simply means the teachings. God's not a traffic cop and he's not a state legislator. These are his teachings. Do this and live. Why would you die? It's his conversation with us. And if we love him, we attend to his words. And if we don't, those words land on us like a mountain from a great height. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, Paul says, you must realize, however, that in the last days, read right now, read right now, difficult times will come. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unfeeling, uncooperative, slanderous, degenerate, brutal, hateful of what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will hold to an outward form of godliness, but deny its power. Somewhat like the fellow whose words we read a little bit earlier. Stay away from such people. This is all part of the bill indictment. Do you see it piling up higher and higher? This is the penal side of things. God is saying, let me tell you what you are because you have to be brought to the end of yourself and to the end of all rationalization before you can finally realize that you are a dead man. The only way that you can come to appreciate and cry out for grace and salvation is if you're thoroughly convinced that apart from that, you are gone. In Romans 3, 21 and 26, Paul says, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness is revealed and attested by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. Ah, now we start to see something, a shift, a change. Everything before this has just been fire from on high, right? But now what we're being told is that the righteousness of God can be accomplished through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's the substitutionary starting to come in. For all who believe, for there is no distinction among people since all have sinned and continue to fall short of God's glory. By his grace, they are justified freely through the redemption that is in the Messiah, Jesus whom God offered us as a place where atonement by the Messiah's blood would occur through faith. There's the substitute. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because he had waited patiently to deal with sins committed in the past. He wanted to demonstrate at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies anyone who has the faithfulness of Jesus. That's the role of the substitute. Now we have to consider how does the substitute go about helping us? How can we, that huge indictment against us, how can we possibly find grace and favor and life eternally in our Lord? Everything in the scriptures pointed to this, everything. Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to what we're about to dig into. What did Christ say to the Pharisees about Torah, about the scriptures? The scriptures, they are written about me. There is nothing in the scriptures that does not point the Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Nothing. 
for he is the word in flesh. The visible image of God in spirit has be, had become the visible image of God in flesh, walking among us. He joined us. He's joined us genetically. He is our kinsman redeemer. This is how it could be done. Because here's your essential scriptural principle of Hebrews 9, 11 to 28. But when the Messiah came as a high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tent that was not made by human hands and that is not part of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he went into the most holy place once for all and secured our eternal redemption. That is atonement. Once for all, never recycled. All of the blood of all the sacrifices that were ever done before the Lord went to the cross was completed in that. All of the earlier sacrifices commanded by the Lord were a way of training people to recognize when the Redeemer came. See the pattern? See the pattern? Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, all pointed to Jesus on the cross. All. What is the significance of that? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are unclean purifies them physically, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead action so that we might serve the living God? This is why the Messiah is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance promised in them since a death has occurred that redeems them from the offenses committed under the first covenant. That is atonement. The basic principle here is the one that is stated in this passage. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Everything was cleansed. If you take a look at the Torah and you read through all of the guidelines and everything and those teachings, everything was cleaned with blood. Why was everything cleaned with blood and not with Dawn dishwashing detergent? Why don't we just stick it in the dishwasher? Because... The only thing that was going to make all things clean was the coming blood of the Messiah. His blood cleansed all things, all things. Because of the fact that he was without spot and blemish, because of the fact that he was without sin, born without sin. That's another very long and interesting teaching that I won't go into here. I'm telling you right now, born without sin. Which is why he had to be born of a virgin. That's your little hint. That's the teaser. So you can read through that whole passage in Hebrews 9, and you come to realize that as Christ said, the scriptures that are written of me. I'm the one that wrote the scriptures. That's why it was a little bit tiresome for him to have to deal with the Pharisees tell him, telling him what should and should be not done on the Sabbath. What was the Lord's response? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I wrote this stuff. You're telling me how I should interpret my writings to make you comfortable? You who are children of Satan, I have no appeasement for you. Don't ever forget in the midst of this, a concept that is often lost in the modern world, 
I tell you truly, brothers and sisters, damnation is real. Hell is a real place. If you have no concept of it, I'm glad. I do have a concept of it. I've seen it. It is awful beyond words. You have no idea of what the eternal living death looks like, but you walk on its roof every day. And those who have departed without Christ, that is where they are. And it would probably destroy your mind to see and hear it. I tell you that truly. There was a problem here, you see. If that's who we were made to be, but then we fell and that's what we became, and for even one sin, destruction would come, but that God called to repentance and through the eventual redeemer would come the possibility of salvation, that you could accept the work of your substitute, just like the lamb, the innocent lamb that was slain was an offering for sin, shedding its blood. That all pointed to the lamb of God shedding his blood. And by faith, you can take his righteousness upon you and give your unrighteousness to him because it was nailed on the cross and you bear it no more. This is the substitution. This is the redeemer. This, by the way, having darkened your hearts with thoughts of damnation and hell, which are real, real, real. I implore you to understand how real they are. The love of God in Jesus Christ is that you can be redeemed. His call to you every day, if you are not in Christ, is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. What are you waiting for? I'm not kidding. What are you waiting for? Examine yourselves to see if you are in Christ. Because the substitute has come. God has done all that can be done for you. If you do not turn to him, if you do not know him and do not turn to him, there is only darkness. Darkness now and eternal death to come. And eternal death, by the way, is quite conscious. So the answer was that justice and mercy had to kiss. Wrath had to be sacrificed, uh, satisfied by the loving sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah, the worthy Lamb of God, the complete atonement for our sins, standing in our place and taking on all of our sins with his perfect life, our kinsman redeemer, the one who resolves the conundrum of perfect justice and perfect love, because that was the challenge before the Lord. How could he be, as Paul put it, how could he be both just and the justifier. How could he be completely righteous, not winking at any evil whatsoever, and still justify that which he loved and longed for, the human race, his people? And the solution was Jesus Christ himself. That absolutely, absolutely resolved the issue much to Satan's amazement. For a mighty individual, Satan is rather stupid. I say that bluntly. His darkness makes him foolish. His pride causes him to stumble repeatedly. Just remember that he hates you and he knows how to get at you. But we have the Lord who has crushed his head.
so it was Christ who was the acceptable sacrifice. It was Christ that completely, perfectly, totally fulfilled the requirements of God's righteousness. It was Christ who willingly gave up his life for his people in perfect love. Before, while we were still sinners, before the foundation of the world, the Lord loved you. If you were his, he loved you. He called you by name. And in the course of time and space, he touched you and you were born again. That is the love of God. It's exactly balanced with his justice. And the fulcrum point of the balance is Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the perfect balance. And then the Lord said to Satan, gotcha. He did. He led captivity captive in his resurrection. Satan was led in humiliation through the streets of heaven. He was shown to be broken and dead. We've had to be dealing with Satan as the ultimate writhing, dying snake that he is. But his power is broken. His head is crushed. Isaiah pointed towards all of this in Isaiah 53. Again, remember the substitutionary atonement. Starting in verse 3 of 53, he said, He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows, intimately familiar with suffering. Don't miss that. Intimately familiar with suffering. And like one from whom people hide their faces. And we despised him and did not value him. And then this. Surely he has borne our sufferings and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But in direct opposition to the opening statement that you heard from our learned friend, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that made us whole was upon him. And by his bruises, we are healed. That is substitutionary atonement. If you reject that, you reject Christ and all scriptural truth. You may have a form of godliness. You may use God words a lot. You may speak theologically. You may talk in the abstract about God, but you do not know God. And you are serving the darkness, which is where our learned friend is. There are many other passages I could look at here. As a matter of fact, the list of passages actually almost is extraordinary. You could, you could very easily put together a massive stack. I did. I spent many days looking at it and came away t totally bemused that any, any person who presumed to be learned could say that the Christian faith has nothing to do with substitutionary atonement, this nasty doctrine that makes everybody feel guilty. Are you kidding me? It's the doctrine that takes away your guilt, that takes away your sin. What you could not do for yourself, he has done for you. If you are indifferent to that, then you are of the darkness, you are walking in darkness. And do not be that, I implore you. As an ambassador of Christ, I implore you, do not love darkness. Turn to the only one who is the saving person who gave himself for you that you might give yourself to him. I'll conclude with Revelation 
those of you who've been in the prophecy group, we've been spending a lot of time, we've already passed through this. But I want you to see how important that that substitutionary atonement, that balancing of justice with love and mercy, how God summed it up in his son. John the Apostle writes and said, Then I saw in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the outside, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a powerful angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy? Well... John says, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. That tells us, that's a snapshot of exactly where the human race is. Was there anyone worthy? In all of history, in all locations, so-called holy men, so-called spiritual leaders, so-called teachers, philosophers <laughs> John's reaction <laughs> this is the apostle John right very close to the Lord himself in all that time right he says I began to cry bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside it for that scroll you see is the charter deed to the earth itself. And John the Apostle, who at this time was in his 90s, was weeping bitterly. Who's worthy? From the passages I read you earlier, the answer is obvious. Nobody. And John's weeping because he knows if no one can open that scroll, then things continue as they've been doing. Personally, I think you ought to know better, John. You know better than this, John. But, you know, he was in the moment. <laughs> Stop crying, one of the elders told me. That would be one of us, by the way. An elder in the church, taken in the rapture of the church, standing there, could be you, could be me. So knock it off, John. Come on. I already read your book. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lord is worthy. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, is worthy completely. The Lamb of God is worthy. That is substitutionary atonement. And in opening those seals, his kingdom begins to emerge, which will be an everlasting kingdom. And we who are his church will rise will join him in the air, and will rule with him by the grace and love of God through the saving blood, the willing sacrifice, the atonement by our kinsman redeemer. That is how we enter in. There is no other way. So if you understand this now, you understand maybe two things. One, why this is important. I think most of us would say, does anybody really question that? Really? Well, we heard from a fellow who did. And two, you'll understand that a tax like the one I read you carry on 2,000 years worth of attacks against the Lord and his Messiah. That just can't be. I'm not so bad. All those white lies, right? I'm okay, you're okay. 
we're all going to be there together. <clears throat> There's a certain portion that's going to be there together in that place. Because if you are not in the Lord's kingdom, you will be in that place. And you aren't going to like it. It will drive you to madness. Forever. Again, as we close, I implore you. If you are not in Christ, now is the day of salvation. Now is the hour. You know not whether this is your last day or not. You know not when your breath might be taken from you. You fool, the Lord said to the farmer who was making his plans. This day I will require your life. But he opens the door and with a smile that comes from an eternal heart says, Enter in, my children. Those who respond to him with faith and love, they will enter in. I hope that helps you. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we come before you with grateful and thankful hearts. We thank you for the all-sufficient sacrifice our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who gave his life and its perfection to us and took upon himself our sins. Upon that cross, once for all, we pray and ask that you would hear our thanks. It's all that we can do, Lord. We were not worthy but we were made worthy by the worthiness of Christ. By the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, we were born again to the new and lively and everlasting hope that we have in Him. All we can say is thank you, Father. And then go and live a life that shows what our new hearts and minds and our new life in Christ mean. Let people who do not know Christ look at us and see Christ in us, the hope of glory. In your holy name, dear Lord.